Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you. I'm really thankful for you guys. Thankful for this time we get to um, to go through the Word, to hear to hear God's voice together. I think it's really important. <laughs> All right, Luke 20, beginning in verse one. Now it happened. On one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the good news, the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And they spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my, I'll send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. <laughs> then he looked at them. And said, what then is this that has been written, that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Kaiser or not, to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they couldn't catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, 
saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. This is a very sad story. <laughs> therefore, therefore, <laughs> I know. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. So Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are accounted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And he said to them, How can they say that the Messiah, that the Christ, is the son of David? Now David himself said in the the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes. Who, who, who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Well, alrighty then. <laughs> shall we pray? We shall pray. <laughs> Father, as we come to your word again, it is with you that we desire to commune. What a joy, what a privilege to know that we have peace with you, and it is not on the grounds of whether or not we have obeyed everything this past week. It is rooted firmly in the solid foundation of what Jesus has already accomplished for us in his death and burial and resurrection. Because he lives, so we live, and we will live. And Lord, we praise you for that. Oh, how deep, how broad, how wide, how wonderful, Lord. How far above and beyond. How full we are because of you. Even if you take everything away from us, still we are full. Because you've given us yourself. Oh, my Father, let us learn, let us learn to rest in you, please. Help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, back up with me to the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, Here in verse 1 of chapter 20. Uh, 
uh, the beginning here starts with uh, kind of reminding us what the last, the end of the last chapter says. The last chapter says Jesus was, this is the final week before the crucifixion. This is when they're coming up to that one of the three main festivals in Israel when all of the men were supposed to travel to Jerusalem. If they were able to, they were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. This is the feast of Passover. It began another feast. There's actually three feasts that are all kind of rolled into one. Sometimes Passover is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay, because there are three feasts that are rolled into one. One of them is Passover that begins it, okay, and then there's the Feast of First Fruits, uh, which is a, few, a couple days later, and then there is Unleavened Bread, which begins uh, right at that same time. Unleavened Bread is a week-long festival, a week-long thing. So you have these three things. I don't know why I'm holding four fingers up. Uh, I forget how to count, I guess. So, so there's three, three, uh, three kind of rolled into this one celebration. It was a major holiday, a major festival uh, in, uh, in Israel, okay? Uh, and in fact, uh, still, still is for many. But anyway, so during this week here, this is before Passover, so before Unleavened Bread begins, uh, there is this time of preparation. Jesus is there um, in like Bethany and Bethphage, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. They would travel daily over to the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and they would go back, and Jesus was constantly teaching the people in the temple. This is a regular thing that's happening during this week-long time, okay? So it happened, verse chapter 20, verse 1, it happened on one of those days. As he taught the people in the temple and preached the good news, the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. So these are leading people in the city of Jerusalem. This, there's been a, calm, a, a, a building up, a culmination happening of the um, antagonism against Jesus by the religious leaders. They had sent detachments and others to sort of investigate this mystery man from up north who was doing miracles. They heard stories about this and, and teaching these, these various things. They had heard him at other times. Jesus had been down in Jerusalem at other times. They had heard him. Uh, and then sometimes he would just sort of vanish into <laughs> into the crowds of people because he was just a common looking man. He looked like everyone else. And, um, and so he was able to um, sort of vanish into the crowds at times. Okay, uh, But now uh, everything's sort of coming to a head here. And so we see the chief priests, the scribes now, they would have been the ones responsible for the, um, for the law itself. And uh, together with the elders, um, the men who made decisions sort of for the nation, they confronted him and they spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? Now I want to stop right here for just a second and mention this. This is a common um, logical fallacy in and of itself to say, you can't say what you're saying or to suggest that a truth claim or some premise is um, true simply because of the authority with which someone has to speak it. We make the same type of logical fallacy when we say things like, uh, like so-and-so has a degree in this, and therefore we can believe what they're saying over against this other person who doesn't have a degree in this. That simply is uh, uh, an appeal to authority. It's a logical fallacy. It doesn't actually support whether or not what's being said is true or not true. It's just us not wanting to actually do the work. <laughs> and so it's, it's, a, it's a heuristic. It's a, it's a mental quickness thing that we use in order to say this person's more valid than this person because such and such a person has this type of degree or this sort of experience or whatever. But it actually has no bearing on whether or not what is being said by that person is true or not true. Okay? Those are two separate issues. And for many of the teachers in Israel, the 
common form of teaching would be to say, I'm saying this because, and then they would appeal to authority, because rabbi so-and-so says, and they would appeal to some other rabbi or some other teacher or something in the, the Mishnah or the Talmud, one of the traditions of the elders. Okay, So they would pe- appeal to some other type of authority as the grounds for which they were uh, presenting their, their truth claim, whatever it was. Okay, So now they come to Jesus and they're like, whoa. Who is it that gave you the authority to do this? Obviously, there's a recognition of a couple things here. One is that Jesus didn't go to the religious leaders and ask their permission, did he? <laughs> right? He didn't go to them and he wasn't like, so God sent me, I'm the Messiah, here's the stuff I'm going to say, right? To get their permission to say. Um, but they were the governing authorities. They were the religious authorities as well. But of course, we know Jesus is above all of them, right? <laughs> He's he's Messiah. He's he's the Lord. He's God, right? So he didn't do that, and they were perturbed by this. This certainly would have been an uncommon thing for a rabbi to do. Um, but he answered, verse three, and said to them, "I also will ask you one thing, and answer me." So Jesus' response, I think, is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> he challenges them. Uh, by by appealing to John the Baptist and asking, you know, what authority John the Baptist had to do what he did. Remember, John was getting crowds of people out at the Jordan River and baptizing them in for repentance, right, for remission of sins, right. That was sort of John's message message to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight, right, to bring this message of repentance, of changing your mind to the people. And then and then he sort of inaugurated Jesus' ministry by recognizing him publicly as the Messiah. As the one sent by God, the one greater than John, he recognized him publicly. And then we see John fade off the scene pretty quickly after that and eventually fade off by losing his head. Right. <clears throat> but Jesus brings up John and, and he's going to challenge them. Um, and, and I think that he's, he knows, he knows that their motivations are so wrong in what they're doing. And he's addressing that issue that like, they're more afraid of the people than they really are about truth. They're not, they're not interested in really knowing what's right here. They're afraid of, of everybody else. They're just trying to maintain the status quo. They're trying to maintain their power structure that they have in place. Right, and if if random people start going around telling truth, making truth claims, random rabbis that don't have their authority, you know what this does? This confronts that power structure, right? Because they they had so so much of a grip on the people and on what they did, and it wasn't only the nation of Israel and their leaders who did this. Eventually, we would see the same thing happen, particularly when the church at Rome was joined together with the Roman Empire itself. But even before that, and after that. When there was such authority given to those leaders that you couldn't say something unless you had apostolic authority or unless you had papal authority or unless you had the authority of the church. You had no authority to be making any particular truth claim, no matter the validity of that claim. That was irrelevant. We uh, Many defaulted to this logical fallacy, this appeal to authority, as the basis by which one might believe or disbelieve a particular premise, a particular claim of truth. Jesus is so fully aware of all of this. And in his challenge, he simply puts them in a position knowing that they can't escape. He literally traps them. He traps them because of their own fear, 
which is, by the way, something that you and I ought to be cautious about because fear itself is a snare. It will trap us, particularly the fear of man, right? That's what Solomon said. He's smarter than you. <laughs> and me too. Solomon said the fear of man is a snare. You know what a snare is, right? Like the little trap you set up to catch little animals or to catch birds or something, right? It's a trap. Fear of man is a trap. And that fear of man ended up causing ended up causing uh, the religious leaders here to be caught in their own trap. But he answered and he said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? In other words, John the Baptist, when he came preaching the message that he preached, that he announced, was his message, was John's authority from the heavens? Was it from God? Or was it just from other men? Was it just people who gave him his authority? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us. They're in a a catch-22, they feel, right? Either we say John's message was really from the heavens, but we didn't actually listen to John. (laughs) We didn't submit to John's message, right? They didn't recognize John's message publicly. But if we say that he was just sent by men, or his authority simply came from men, then all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So the common people believe that John was really sent by God. And so if they go about and say, well, you know, John just was kind of going on his own authority, or just the authority of men, not really from the authority of God, they were afraid of people. And now they're caught in their own trap, this fear of man. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, flatly. Now, the next part, here's the next, this parable. Guess what Jesus is going to do in this parable? He's going to reveal exactly what his authority is in the next parable here. But you see that it is um, directed to the people, not simply the religious leaders, it seems, but to the people. Mind you, they're hearing this because they get mad at the end of it when they realize that Jesus is speaking this parable against them. So we see the leaders there still listening. Um, Verse 9, then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. And uh, And now, at vintage time... He sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. So this is, uh, if we are recognizing the general, remember parables are to give us a general illustration of a main point. Jesus is illustrating the fact that God has left Israel with this great blessing, this great promise, and he even sent prophet after prophet after prophet whom they rejected again and again and again and again, some wounding some and even killing some of the prophets, right? So this sort of thing happened over and over again. So now in the parable, we see this, verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him, right? Remember, this is the parable. (laughs) This is the illustration, the story that Jesus is giving to illustrate his his point here. Um, This is one of the problems with taking parables and trying to make every single line mean some particular thing. This idea then would suggest that God didn't realize that Israel was going to reject Jesus, but that's false. God knew. This This was part of the plan. Okay, this is simply an illustration he's using to make a point, and the people that are hearing it, they know exactly what he's saying to them, and they get mad about it. <laughs> Instead of repenting, they just get mad. Um, so, 
probably they will respect him when they see him. Verse 14, but when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Hey, as we've been going through these stories, I've repeatedly tried to remind you of this reality that Jesus pronounced judgment on that generation of Israel. And it came 40 years later, that generation, okay? Physical, real, actual judgment. Death, okay? Like this very real thing. When we talk about this idea of judgment, I know that sometimes it makes people uneasy, but we have to consider this reality, right? Jesus pronounced judgment because of their rejection of him. The judgment came. Any who repented and turned and left Jerusalem, any who believed the good news and decided they were going to flee, Jesus even gave warnings. And some of those things we read into like way in the future, but some of those things about leaving on the Sabbath day and all of that, like those are very applicable to Israel, even in that first judgment that happened in AD 70. So Jesus said, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. This was the response of the common people. Certainly not. He won't do that. That's exactly what people say now. When we talk about God's judgment, right? We say God's going to judge the world in righteousness. All the elements, the, the very elementary principles, particles that make everything up will melt with fervent heat. God will judge. What do people say? Certainly not. (laughs) Same thing, (laughs) right? I'm still saying that. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? I love this because his response to them is to bring up the, the writings of the prophets. This is how Jesus knows what he's saying is true. Well, Jesus knows what he's saying is true is is because he's God. I, I think that's sort of a cop-out answer. <laughs> the humility of Jesus, the humility of God in coming to earth in Jesus is something I think that is a great mystery and something that we um, maybe wrestle and struggle with fully understanding. We, we should. Um, but Jesus brings up, Actually, this is from Psalm 118, which is the same psalm that the people were crying out from whenever Jesus was going into the city. Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. This passage right here is from the same psalm, but earlier on in the psalm. So Jesus says, this is what's written. This is how Jesus knows it's going to happen, by the way. Anytime Jesus says it's written, this is his way of saying, this is why I know it's just going to happen. Because this is what the prophet said. That's the kind of authority with which I want you to wield the scriptures, (laughs) right? I want you to have that kind of truth claim. To say, the reason why I know this to be true is because God has said it to be true in his word. What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The people are like, no, certainly not. Certainly, if the, vin- if the vine dresser uh, or, or the uh, owner of the vineyard, if he sends his, his beloved son, certainly not, they said. They won't refuse him. Certainly not. They won't kill him. That's a terrible idea. 
But Jesus said, I know this is going to happen. How did he know? Because Psalm 118, because the prophet said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It is because of the writings of the prophet that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. They were going to reject him. And, and yet he is, of course, the chief cornerstone and would be. Now, the next part, here's Jesus' application of him being the chief cornerstone. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. And suddenly you're like, oh, man, that doesn't sound great. That sounds bad. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Ooh, that kind of sounds worse. <laughs> that sounds worser. <laughs> these are <laughs> these are the only two options, gang. We throw ourselves on him, and we find that he does break us. Oh, but what joy when he breaks me of my arrogance and pride, my jealousy and covetous heart. When he breaks me of all the things that defile and destroy his kingdom and the lives of, of my own family and of me and of the lives of the people around me, what joy it is to know that he does break. I'm just like a good doctor having to re-break a bone to set it properly. He does break. There is much that I need to be broken of. <laughs> I am too proud. And it causes harm to my wife and harm to my children and harm to to others. I need to be broken. God forbid that you or I refuse to throw ourselves on him and be broken and find at the last that he is in fact a stone that grinds to powder. <laughs> well, it sounds like a threat. All right, <laughs> here's what I want you to see. <coughs> I want you to understand that the person handing you a parachute as the only life-saving measure while you are on a plane crashing is not doing you a disservice. If he says, the plane is crashing and you'll be destroyed, take this. He is not wrong. He's not trying to limit you or hurt you. And I need you to see that the world is a crashing plane. If you, if you haven't seen that yet, just watch some news for a little while. <laughs> We're a mess. We're all a mess. All of our political systems, all of them, because they're rooted in humanity, they're a mess. All of the world is a mess. We're, we're crashing. We're on a crashing plane. And he stands at the precipice of history holding the one rescue from death. <laughs> and it is wildly insane to say, oh no, you can't say that. That can't be the only way. 
That can't be the only thing. Don't tell me there's judgment coming. You're already headed that way. (laughs) We're already going that direction. (laughs) Oh, but he has become the chief cornerstone. (laughs) Let us throw ourselves on him. The chief priests and scribes, verse 19, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. See, when they heard Jesus say all this stuff, they weren't like, oh, he's so right. We should humble ourselves. They're like, nah, brah, we need to kill this dude. He is aggravating our power structures that kept them rich. (laughs) Oh, the love of money is indeed the root of all kinds of evil. (sighs) Not just then, now too. They feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Still, the fear of man is their snare. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. You've got to love these guys. These are the religious leaders telling people the right things that God wants them to do, and they, they essentially hire or send out spies to pretend to be righteous. They weren't really righteous. They're pretending to be righteous. I love how, like, it's <laughs> so ridiculous. It's such a ridiculous thing, right? They pretended to be righteous, and the idea is, it seems, that they're, like, pretending to be Jesus' followers, Right? I'm so glad that that doesn't happen anymore, that people don't pretend to follow Jesus anymore in order to cause problems. Anyways, um, so glad that we don't have an enemy who sows discord like that. Oh, wait. We do. They might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. These, it seems like these are the, those people who are pretending to be righteous, right? These are the spies that were sent. They asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you, don't, you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. It's all a lie. They don't believe that. <clears throat> Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to catch him. They don't really believe this. This is lip service, right? And this is why, particularly if you're in any position of authority, you ought to always be cautious when anybody comes up to you and says, oh, you're so wonderful. You're just the greatest person or the greatest teacher or the greatest this or that or the other. You're just so wonderful. Like, what do you want? (laughs) What are you after, right? So is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, their, their craftiness, their trying to trick him. He perceived their craftiness and they said to him, and said to them, rather, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius, right? That uh, famous line, show me the money, right? <laughs> Whose image and inscription does it have? You guys didn't know that was from the Bible, did you? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, forgive me. <clears throat> Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and they said, Caesars, right? It was the the Caesars uh, minted the money. They put their face on it. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. And this, for me, should be one of those places that sort of settles the issue that like God isn't really, he doesn't need our money. He's not interested in, in money. Like God owns everything, right? He doesn't need that. 
we, we need to be sharing because that's an important part of our life as followers of Jesus, right? But that's a, that's a separate issue and a different motivation. God doesn't need your money. And I think we do a disservice. Those of us who lead in the church, we do a disservice when we suggest that God is poor or he needs you to give something uh, like God needs your money to so that he can some dude can buy a jet so he doesn't have to get vaccinated or whatever nonsense people try and come up with, you know, like, like, um, we do such a horrible disservice, uh, not only to the sake of the kingdom, because we're taking advantage of people who actually believe us, which is itself horrible, horrible. Ho- what does horrible mean? It's also horrible. It's horrifyingly horrible. <laughs> I have the microphone. I can make up words. It's fine. <laughs> Um, not only is it terrible for them, but then it also has this other consequence of, of polluting the, the world in its attitude toward the, the church or the people who do follow Jesus, right? It becomes pollution. It becomes uh, a horrible scent um, to the unbelieving world, uh, whom, if we are walking in the way of Jesus, whom we ought to be loving and pursuing and wanting to see reconciled to God, as many as the Lord our God will call, right? We just go, we announce, and somehow God just rescues people. It's fascinating (laughs) and wonderful and good because he doesn't have to do it. That's the thing that I think sometimes we, we make this assumption that like, if God is good, he has to rescue us from our sin, but that's just not true. He doesn't. In fact, because he's good, he ought to punish us in all of our sin. (laughs) The fact that he rescues anybody is itself um, amazing. It was powerful, wonderful, incomprehensible. I've lived around many of you for a while now. The fact that he rescues any of us is insane. (laughs) It's crazy. Oh, but he says that he just, he does it because he loves us and he's making us trophies of his grace so that for all of the ages to come, all of the angels that God has made, 10,000s upon 10,000s, they would look at you and I, his dear saints, and they would say, isn't God so kind? Look at how he rescued Jason. That's how, why would he even do that? (laughs) Right? Because God sent no savior for the angels who disobeyed, but he has redeemed men. (laughs) <laughs> He's crowned us, right? He, and he will crown us actually above the angels and give us authority over the angelic affairs. This is wild. We'll talk about that kind of stuff in other places. There's a few places where Paul brings those ideas up. But <clears throat> Okay, wrapping up where we are here. Show me a denarius. Show me the money, he said. <laughs> Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and they said, Caesar's. Right? Caesar's on the, the face of the money. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In the most simple way, sort of Occam's razor way to view this, right? Is to recognize when we go back to the beginning, these are Jewish people he's talking to who would have, hopefully, through the reading and teaching of Moses, they would have a firm grip on this idea that humans in a very special way, are those created in the image of God. Different than the animals, different than all of the stars and planets and everything else that God made. 
God stooped down to the earth and he took the dust and he formed man and breathed into him the breath of life. Let us make mankind in our image, God said, in that holy tribunal. This is why. Because we all come from one man. Even if some are beginning to doubt that again. For a while there, we even had some um, some people in a, sort of the scientific community, they were like, yeah, this makes sense. Now it seems like they're going back the other direction again, but it doesn't matter. We have been made in God's image. I think Jesus' statement becomes plain then. Not only about us and our responsibility to pay taxes, give to Caesar what Caesar's. That's something that Paul talks about later on in the book of Romans, by the way, right? God has established governing authorities over throughout the world. We need to recognize those authorities. They are there, uh, put there in place by God to punish evildoers. Um, do they do that perfectly? Mm-mm. <laughs> Do they make mistakes? Mm -hmm. You know why? Because they're filled with fallen people. Um, <clears throat> and they always will until the king returns. But render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what is God really after? He's not after your purse. He wants your face, your heart. He wants you. He wants all that you are. You are precious to him, made in his image. And so too your children, your friends, your enemies. Give to God what is God's. You are made in his image. Give yourself to him. It is you that he has wanted. And if that doesn't cause you to leap with joy inside, I don't know what does. I don't know what could. In a world where so many of us have felt rejected or neglected or refused to know that God has said that it is you, my, my precious friends, that he has loved and you that he desires. God does not need servants. Do you understand that? He's not looking for more people to do, do work for him. He doesn't need that. You have the great privilege of participating in the work that God is doing in the world, and that's wonderful. But it is you that he wants, you and him together. Your relationship with him, you spending time with the almighty God who has given his dear son to rescue you from your sin, that you might become a trophy of his grace for all of the ages to come, enjoying him and his perfections in all of their multifaceted vastness forever. Oh, it's, it is incomprehensible. <laughs> God is above and beyond us. He is transcendent beyond all of his creation. And he is imminently present here, right now, with you, wherever you are. Because he has said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you so that you, when you are at work and you are struggling, he is there. When you are at home and struggling with your children or your spouse, he is there. 
when you are, are wrestling with issues, he is there. When you are wrestling with your own heart in despair, he is still there. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable. That is your reasonable act of worship, of service. People say, I want to worship God. What do you do? You give yourself to him. God, my hands, my feet, my mouth, my eyes, my brain, all that I am is yours. My house, my car, my children, all that I am is yours, oh Lord. It all already is his. <laughs> you and I are just grasping at it, trying to take authority from him. <laughs> Verse 26 concludes that section with this, but they couldn't catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and they kept silent. He blew their minds with his response to them related to this issue of, of um, taxes. Is it lawful? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. I love this one of my favorite stories. <laughs> Oh, the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe there was a resurrection. <laughs> Come on, that's a classic. <laughs> they they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in, in angels or spirits. They didn't believe there was life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. Okay? And so some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection... <laughs> One moment... <laughs> who denied that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, stop right there for a second. The Sadducees are trying to just catch Jesus in his words and prove that they're right. There is no resurrection. We can prove it. And they're going to lay out this story that they're telling in order to prove to Jesus that he's wrong and that they're right, that there's not really a resurrection, that they're correct in their belief here. They're trying to, again, uh, like the Pharisees and the others were, they were trying to catch Jesus in his words and sort of disprove him as a, a rabbi, as a teacher. This particular law that's mentioned is called a law of the levirate marriage. Uh, it might sound weird to you, but when uh, all of your, when all of your, essentially your wealth as a family is passed down through your family's inheritance, this becomes a vital thing for your family's name to continue. And one of the ways that that was done was through this law of levirate marriage, uh, where if you were an older brother and you married a lady and you died and you didn't have any children, because the firstborn son would become the one responsible for the family and the one who sort of uh, takes care of the inheritance and also takes care of the rest of the family, okay? Who And who gets the largest part of the inheritance because of that. Um, if you didn't have any children, then your wife, you're now deceased, so your widow, was to marry your next youngest brother, right? Uh, now, of course, there were all sorts of issues. There are obvious complications related to this. This, this isn't some sort of solve everything issue. It, it, it's a very practical sort of, this is a way that we can keep lineages and families alive and continuing to go. Uh, and it worked for doing that very thing. Uh, so you were to take your, if you were the younger brother, you were to take the wife of your older brother and sleep with her. You were to marry her. And uh, and then the first child that's born is then considered the child of the eldest brother and not your own child. That child becomes the firstborn in the family. That's the one that then uh, the inheritance passed through and the lineage is carried through. Okay, so it was a responsibility then. So this obviously would 
I kind of like this because I feel like it then makes families, they would like all the brothers would be like really looking at who their older brother was going to marry. You know what I mean? Like they're like investigating, like, you sure you want to marry her? Cause like, what if you die? And like, I have to marry her, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know. I kind of li- I like that idea of like the, I feel like they would probably want to take some ownership of this decision, right? Like <laughs> there's some family involvement here, right? <laughs> Anyways, doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, it's neither here nor there. This is the, this is the basis of their question, of their attack against Jesus, is this law to liberate marriage. They're gonna use this law as a way to say, see, there's no resurrection, right? Of course, they're just wrong. The Sadducees believed the law of Moses. They rejected some of the other writings of Israel, but they believed Moses. So the Tanakh or the, um, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they believed those, okay? Um, so Moses wrote this. Now verse 29 says this. Now there were seven brothers. Here's where they get into the tricky, the trickiness of their question. There were seven brothers and you can like hear it. Dun, 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 right? There were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. Oh no. Did somebody check the cooking? I'm just kidding. And the second took her as wife and he died childless again. I'd be a little suspect of this lady, right? She's a little sus, right? <laughs> At this point. Anyway, this is just a story that they're telling because they're trying to catch Jesus uh, and trying to prove that there is no resurrection. They're trying to catch him in being wrong in his teaching. And so um, the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her, verse 31, the third took her and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. So it's a great fun story. Everybody dies. Which is, by the way, just life. (laughs) It's important for us to remember that sometimes. It's important. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. They're like, look, I'm going to trick Jesus. If there is a resurrection, then how can this be true? Right? This lady's going to have seven husbands in the resurrection, and that's crazy talk. Mind you, having seven wives would be totally fine, right? <laughs> Plural marriage was was fine in many ancient cultures, including in Israel. It was it was seen as a very normal, common type of thing. Um, it it uh, was something that was allowed. Please don't misunderstand. Uh, God never sanctioned it or said it was what was wanted or right. Uh, in fact, when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, every single time he always goes back to the very beginning. And he says, this has been God's intent from the beginning. Man and woman for a lifetime, right? Every single time. So anyway, so they're trying to catch Jesus with this story. <laughs> um, Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife, um, which would be, they'd be hearing this. And they'd be like, that is horribly offensive. How can one woman have seven wives? That's terrible. Seven husbands. Sorry. Sorry. It's different now. I'd be like that now. Right. But it's different now. Anyways. Um, right. Jesus answered and he said to them, verse 34, the sons of this age, this is, I think, an important um, reality about what the resurrection is going to be like. And I think that we ought to listen and uh, just understand this about the reality of the kingdom of the resurrection. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age, the one we're in now, marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore. Oh, oh that's a nice little 
little yeah slit that thing in there right nor can they die anymore right because sort of the premise of their thing is that these people uh are dying <sighs> guys i'm really looking forward to the resurrection the older i get i'm gonna be 40 next year 40 <laughs> 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 Shh, I can't can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Nor can they die anymore. Hey, that ought to give your heart rest. I hope it does. Hey gang, would you believe Jesus? Will you please believe him? For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. I want you to stop right there for just a sec. Jesus is not saying that people become angels. They don't. I know that you see when so-and-so died, people get a thing put on the back of their car that says, my loved one's an angel now, or some nonsense. Angels are a particular created order of beings. There are several different classes or types of angels the Bible talks about, seraphim and uh, cherubim. And uh, there are other um, interesting details related to angels. It, when when they're seen in angelic or heavenly settings, they can be quite terrifying looking. I was reading some of the revelation to my boys, and <laughs> Caleb's like, that's scary. <laughs> like, uh, uh-huh. We think that now, right? But like when we see that in all of its glory, I think that will just be like, wow, you're amazing, God, that you would make beings like this. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> so, a man and a woman commit their lives to each other until one of them dies. This is this covenant, this commitment called marriage. But in the resurrection, we're not going to be married like that. Not in that way. They are equal to the angels and our sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage. Now he's going to address particularly that there is a resurrection. And guess what he's going to use? Moses. Because the Sadducees respected Moses' authority. They believed the Torah. At least mostly. <laughs> right? Because there are obviously spiritual things in the Torah uh, that they would have had to be like, uh, no. Right? So they believed the Torah. So Jesus now uses the Tanakh or the Torah uh, to address the issue of the resurrection. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. I just want you to hear that for a second. I don't want to go too deeply into this debate between annihilation and, and a, eternal conscious torment and that sort of stuff. But I do want to hear the words of Jesus and take them to heart. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The basis by which Jesus presents this logical argument that Moses teaches there is a resurrection from the dead is that when Moses is standing at the burning bush 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead, He's standing at the burning bush, 
And we read, Moses says, he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They, he is still their God. He didn't say, I, I was their God. He is their God. 400 years after they're, they're all dead, he is still their God because they are, in fact, alive. That is what Moses is teaching, and Jesus is presenting that truth claim, that argument, using the Tanakh, using the Torah to them. <clears throat> he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well, but after that they dared not question him anymore. Everybody's trying to catch him in his words, and all his responses are just so on point. You know why? Because he Jesus. <laughs> But in the end, here's what I want you to see. In his responses, you know what he's constantly appealing to? The writings of the prophets. Don't neglect your Bible, dear saints. It is the living word of God. Please do not neglect the scriptures. There's so many ideas presented to you, but you need to know what the prophets have said. You need to know the word of God and then to filter everything else through what he has said. And he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? He's now going to ask them a question to, to catch them. <laughs> he said to them, how can they say that the, the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is from Psalm 110. Uh, this is a messianic psalm, commonly believed to be uh, regarding the Messiah. But here's what I want you to know, as I pointed out before. Look at the passage. Is it like that up here? Let me see. Yeah, it is. Okay. Look at the passage here. You see that? See that word? Hmm? And then look at the other one. See that? Yeah, lowercase O-R-D. See that, guys? Yeah? Okay. So this one is what our English translators used whenever the Hebrew text says the name. We don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe Jehovah, maybe. Some people suggest Yahweh, but my friend who speaks Hebrew says that wouldn't make sense to people who speak Hebrew. So, um, Anyway, so when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the name of God. Not the, not the title for Lord, not the word God, none of the titles. That is the name, okay? So, the Lord, God, the Lord, said to my Lord. Now, that's David calling the Messiah, what? His master, his Lord. That's what that other Lord is, is the way of saying somebody in authority over me, right? So, this is David writing in the psalm, and David saying that God, the Lord, is saying to David's Lord, to my Lord. He's calling the Messiah his Lord. And so, this is the basis of Jesus' question. How is the Messiah the son of David if David calls him his master? Because <laughs> that would be offensive, right? To call your own child your master. No, no, no. You're the master of your children. By the way, you need to be the master of your children, okay? You're responsible for your children, gang. Um. <laughs> the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is the basis of his particular statement here. Um, to challenge them and their understanding of who the Messiah really is. Jesus is obviously teaching that Messiah is greater than David. 
not simply the son of David, but greater than King David. And the Jews believe David to be the greatest. He's chief, bro. David is like the great king. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And he drops the mic. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> right. <laughs> then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, here's our close. For more on Jesus lambasting the spiritual leaders in Israel, I commend to you Matthew 23. Read it in its entire entirety. For more on the early leaders in the church um, <laughs> tearing down false teachers, I, I commend to you the book of Jude, and I commend to you Second Peter chapter 2. They are brutal, brutal condemnations of false teachers and leaders and authorities, um, particularly spiritual ones. So, in all the hearing of the people, he said this to his disciples, beware of the scribes. The scribes were the ones who were responsible for the law itself. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. As James would say later on, do not many of you desire to be teachers knowing that we will receive greater condemnation, greater judgment. Now, if you're a parent, you don't get to opt out. <laughs> you're a teacher. <laughs> My point is that we ought to take that reality to heart, firstly. Secondly, um, if the Lord does use us, me, you, in some particular way. Let us be cautious of pride. It is God. Remember Paul's writings, like to the church at Corinth, when it's like some of you say I'm of Paul and some I'm of Apollos, but we're just messengers through whom you believed, he said. Because what is what is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who, the, we're nothing, he said. One person plants, another person waters, but it's always God who gives life. It's God who gives the increase. So then we are nothing. That was Paul's assessment of himself. Jesus taught us in a parable earlier on in the book of Luke. Do you guys remember this story? Jesus said, when you've done what was commanded of you, say, I am an unprofitable servant. I've only done what was asked of me. That's the way we've had several people recently that are like, oh, you guys are so great, you know, taking in those kids and helping those kids or whatever. And I just have to say, no, I'm not. I'm just an unprofitable servant. I'm just doing what I was told to do. That's it. I'm not greater than anybody else. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> there was this... Those who are responsible for the law carry themselves in a way so as to esteem themselves highly above others. And Jesus rebuked this type of attitude. And the same ought to be true for you and me in any capacity that God, that God uses our lives and the lives of the people around us. This is why when I meet people, I'm, I'm not Pastor Jason. I don't, I, don't ref, I don't talk about myself that way. I don't think like that. I am just Jason. <clears throat> I don't wear special collars so that people know that I have some spiritual authority. Oh, they'll respect you if they know that. 
Maybe. Oh, but it's so much easier for me to just love people and gentleness and just be real. If people don't know, because when people know, they get all weird, right? Because like there's this cultural thing that you have to overcome, right? People use different words around me. They clean up their language. I don't. I don't need that. <laughs> not protecting me from anything. I don't care. Be who you are. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's just. Anyways, so um, may God protect us from pretension, dear saints, in all of its forms. Let us do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves. That's what the apostle taught us. Oh, that's what the great apostle Jesus taught us, right? Who though it wouldn't be robbery to call him equal with God, he made himself of no reputation, taking on himself the form of a slave. And he humbled himself in obedience to God, obedience even to the point of death. And I think we have to say, like the author to the Hebrews, we have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. (laughs) When somebody comes and kills you for following Jesus, then we can change that, but... (laughs) maybe that'll happen I don't know maybe God will send you somewhere else and it'll happen to you I don't know but regardless I commend to you as I mentioned um, Matthew 23 2 Peter 2 Jude just read the whole book of Jude the whole book yeah it's just one the one chapter it's fine it's good Jude's whole deal is just lambasting false leadership (laughs) false spiritual leadership he just blasts it He like drops a nuke, right? Just drops a nuclear bomb on it. Anyways, guys, you are so loved. (laughs) Let us live with our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your patient and steadfast love. Would you bless my friends and my family? This, my family. Those who hear the word of God and do it. Just as they are your family, Lord. I pray that you would bless and hear and encourage and strengthen and fill our hearts with joy, Lord, even in the midst of sorrow and trouble and difficulty, because we will not be freed from those things until we see that resurrection with our own eyes. (sighs) And yet your promise of peace remains. And the truth of joy in your presence remains. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be those who seek it out and who find that all that you have said has always been true and it cannot be otherwise because you are the unchanging one. You are the eternal one, O King. And we praise you. O Lord, (laughs) teach us, teach us of your love that we might enjoy you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys. Love you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. The Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace.